You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Now turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 1. Galatians, chapter 1. We'll begin reading at verse 1, and we'll read through the end of verse 9. Galatians, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Let's bow together. Our Father, we pray that you would bless our time and study in your word this morning. Help us to think rightly about the salvation that you have given to your people and the gospel, and what the substance of it is, and what it does for those who are yours. We pray that you would open our eyes to these things and teach us by your Holy Spirit. Grant to us an ability to focus and to keep our thoughts and intentions upon this word this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are celebrating next month the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. On October 31st, 1517, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther walked up to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, next to the monastery there, and he nailed 95 statements, known as the 95 Theses, to the door of the church in Wittenberg. That was officially the launch of the Protestant Reformation as sort of the date that we attached to it, though for centuries prior to that, as you're about to find out, there were various and sundry efforts to reform the church from inside of the church. And we are starting today a series of messages honoring the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, where we're going to be talking about the theological differences between Roman Catholicism and Evangelical Protestantism, or just what we would call Protestantism. And I'm going to use some shorthand terms today, like the Church at Rome or Rome, and by that I am referring to the Roman Catholic Church, the leadership, the official structure, the official doctrine of the Church, and not necessarily poking fingers at any individual Roman Catholics. Um, and, And I want you to understand here at the beginning, and I'm going to return to this at the end, that everything I am about to say right now is motivated by love. I hold no personal animus toward Roman Catholics, um, and neither do any of the other elders of this church. This is a series that is motivated by love with the intention of informing you as to what the issues are concerning the differences and distinctions between Roman Catholics and Protestants. And it is my job today to introduce to us, and this is a daunting task, the subject of the Protestant Reformation and the theological issues that were at the heart and are at the heart remain at the heart of the divide that exists even to this day between Protestants and Catholics. So let's begin with a question. 
And here's the question. Why are you not a Roman Catholic? Why are you not a Roman Catholic? More broadly speaking, why is Cooney Community Church not a Catholic church? Why are you not a Catholic? I'll give you a second to answer that in your own heart. Time's up. We, we can't spend, I got a lot of stuff to cover. We can't spend time with dramatic pauses. So now that you've answered that in your own heart, let me give you what would typically be a number of responses from people who would be broadly speaking within the Protestant community or the Protestant tent. And I, I would contend to you that most Protestants, and by most I don't mean 51% or 50.5%, I mean 90, probably closer to 95% of Protestants are not Protestant out of theological conviction. They're Protestant for a number of other reasons. Now, some people would say, I'm not a Protestant because I really don't like the high church atmosphere. All of the robes and the vestments and the formal ceremonies and the rituals and burning all of those candles cannot possibly be good for the environment. And then we have to we come to church and I've got to sit down and stand up and kneel down and stand up and sit and kneel and kneel to sit and stand up again and... I don't want to be jumping up and down like that on a Sunday morning unless I'm watching a football game or a Super Bowl Sunday. It's just way too much for me. I like a church where I can come in and sort of kick my feet up on the, on the pew in front of me or the seat in front of me, and I can cross my legs and I can, I can just listen to something that's very friendly and engaging. I like to sit there and sip on my free trade dark roast Americano with two pumps of cream that I picked up in the lobby of the church building. And our pastor, he doesn't wear all of the robes. He, he wears mostly worn out blue jeans and a shirt that's thin enough it looks like it should be a rag in the garage and it's tight enough that you can tell that he works out and he gets he gets up there and he doesn't speak in in languages that we don't understand he leans on the pulpit like this he's so earnest and he talks to us about struggles and relationships and connecting with one another and connecting with God and being legitimate and transparent as a church body and I just love that. And I can sit there and just take it in and enjoy it. And all the formalism is just not for me. Other people would say, I was raised a Protestant. My daddy was a Protestant. My daddy's daddy was a Protestant. My daddy's 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 daddy was a Protestant. We've always been Protestant. We've been Baptists. I've grown up in a Baptist church. I live in a Baptist church. I was baptized in a Baptist church. I got married in a Baptist church. We've always been Baptist. Our whole family's been Baptist. And by the grace of God, I'll die in a Baptist church. John the Baptist was a Baptist, and he baptized Jesus. So Jesus was obviously a Baptist. And if being a Baptist was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. So I'm, I'm a Baptist. That's why I'm a Baptist. And that could be able to tell you anything other than that. Or some people would say, all of my friends are Protestants. I go to the Protestant, to local Protestant, non-Catholic church, because all the other guys on the bowling team are Protestant, or all of the... All of the guys at the softball league are Protestant, and that's just kind of where the people where I work all go to church there, and so that's why we go to church. Most Protestants will not give you a theological reason for why they go to a Protestant church. That's, that's tragic. It's tragic. Ironically, most Catholics will give you all of those reasons in reverse for going to a Catholic church. See, they will say, I like the, the feel of the high church. I like the feel of the rituals and ceremonies. It makes me feel at home. I like the smells and the bells and all of the rituals. And I can sit there and be part of the same thing every Sunday. There's a sense of being at home and being one with everybody that is there. And it, I feel like it ties me back to the first century being there and listening to all of that formalism. And so that's why I'm a Catholic. Or they would say, I'm a Catholic because I grew up a Catholic. My mom was a Catholic. My daddy was a Catholic. My grandparents were Catholic. I was born in the Catholic Church, baptized in the Catholic Church, confirmed in the Catholic Church. And by the grace of God, I'll die in a Catholic Church. 
That's the reason that they're Catholics. Or they would say, all my friends are Catholics. And so I look forward to going on a Sunday morning and Wednesday night bingo night at the Catholic church is the highlight of my week and that's where all of my friends are. So that's why I stay in a Catholic church. I hope that for you, you are not among the 95% who would not be able to give a theological reason as to why you are Protestant and not Catholic. And I hope for you that you are Protestant because of a theological, solely theological conviction that it comes down to one and one thing only Rome has a different gospel than the biblical gospel. Not forms and ceremonies, not rituals and smells and bells or my lineage or my grandpa or Jesus was that or Peter was the other thing. I hope that you are Protestant and not Catholic because of the theological conviction that at the heart of this divide is the reality that Protestants and Catholics will answer this question differently. What must a man do to be saved? What must a man do to be saved? How am I made right with God? I am a sinner, and I will stand before a righteous and holy God. How can I, a depraved, wretched, sinful, guilty sinner, stand in the presence of a righteous God on that day? On what basis am I declared right before God? That is the question that is at the heart of the Roman Catholic and Protestant divide. So what was the Reformation? Let me give you a brief introduction to it. The Reformation, broadly speaking, and in, in a very general way, in one, one word answer, it was a revival. It was the greatest, single greatest move of the Holy Spirit in the church since the days of the apostles. Apart from the redemptive events recorded in the New Testament, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, His ascension to the Father's right hand, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Apart from those events recorded in the New Testament, the reformation of the church was the single greatest move of the Holy Spirit in the history of Christianity. It was a return to biblical preaching. It was a return to biblical doctrine. It was a return to the centrality of the gospel in the life of the church and of the Christian. For a thousand years, aptly called the Dark Ages, the Roman Catholic Church had eclipsed the gospel with all of their traditions and their man-made dogmas and superstitions and layers upon layers of things that confused people. The gospel had literally been eclipsed and hidden for a thousand years. And suddenly onto the scene broke a movement of the Holy Spirit. Almost simultaneously all over Europe, a, a singularly great movement of the Holy Spirit that returned the gospel and the authority of Scripture to the center of the life of the church. That's what the Reformation was. And it came at the hands of a man named Martin Luther. In John Calvin's Geneva, they had a Latin phrase that they adopted as the motto of the Protestant Reformation. Post tenebris lux. Post tenebris lux means after darkness, light. That is how they saw it. After a thousand years of oppressive spiritual darkness, finally the gospel was brought to the center preached again, proclaimed again, the Word of God was preached again, and the light began to shine. And it could not be eclipsed again, and it has not been eclipsed since. Now, Martin Luther is who we typically, and we're going to get to Galatians chapter 1, but i got a little bit of groundwork that i got to do before we get back to Galatians 1. It wouldn't be right for me to preach a message on the Reformation without giving an exposition of Scripture, since the Reformation was all about the exposition of Scripture. So we will get to that in due time, but I've got a little bit of groundwork I need to do before that. Martin Luther is who we typically credit with starting the Protestant Reformation, October 31st, 1517. But Luther was really not the first reformer. Uh, Luther was a tanker full of gasoline that was thrown onto a smoldering fire, a fire that had been smoldering for centuries. 
One of the earliest notable reformers was a man named Peter Waldo. He lived from 1140 to 1205. Peter Waldo challenged many of the beliefs and practices of the Roman Catholic Church, and a movement started around him, sort of a, re a spiritual renewal movement that was known as the Waldensian movement. Peter Waldo is credited with being the first one to, to publish a Bible translation in a modern language, a European language. Rome didn't like that. Rome never liked stuff like that. Having the Bible in their own language was something they opposed for hundreds of years. Uh, Peter Waldo was hunted and hated by the Catholic Church, excommunicated in 1184, and he had to flee into the mountains of northern Italy and spend the rest of his days with his followers in hiding from the Roman Catholics. And, of course, that left the Catholics wondering, where's Waldo? <laughs> <clears throat> after Peter Waldo, who never was found, after Peter Waldo, 200 years after him, was John Wycliffe. Wycliffe lived from 1320 to 1384, and remember, we're still 200 years prior to Martin Luther. John Wycliffe opposed the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. He took upon himself the monumental task of translating the scriptures from the Latin Vulgate into the Middle English language. He was made a target of the Roman Catholic Church, and they hunted him and hated him. He eventually died in 1384. Thirty years later, the Roman Church exhumed his remains, pronounced him a heretic, tried him, post-mortem, burned his remains and scattered them into the river Swift. John Wycliffe was followed by a man named Jan Hus. Jan Hus was a Bohemian scholar. He lived from 1369 to 1415, and he was a religious leader. And he became convinced that the Roman Catholic Church had abused its power, and he preached and taught against many of the practices and beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church. He preached that the doctrines of the Roman Church were contrary to Scripture. Eventually, Jan Hus was captured, excommunicated, tried, imprisoned, and then burned at the stake on July 6th in 1415. And interestingly, the last name Hus means goose. And we get the phrase, your goose is cooked, from the, ex from the excommunication and burning of the stake of John Hus. Jan Hus. And he said, while at the stake, he said, though you may burn this goose, he said, a hundred years from now, a swan will arise whose voice you will not be able to silence. And almost prophetically, a hundred years later, along came Martin Luther. We owe so much to these men. And there are hundreds of others that I could give to you. Hundreds of others during these three, four hundred years prior to the Reformation. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. He was born in 1483, he lived to 1546. Uh, he was converted through a rather traumatic experience and became an Augustinian monk to pay off what he believed was a debt that he owed to God for saving and sparing his life. He was studying in, the, in a monastery in Wittenberg, Germany, and while he was studying Romans 1 and the book of Galatians and the book of Hebrews and the Psalms, Luther came to the conviction that a man is declared righteous, not on the basis of papal indulgences, papal activities, the treasury of merit, his confession, his penance, his good works, praying to Mary, praying to the saints, the mass, or anything that the Pope does. A man is declared righteous in the sight of God by faith and faith alone that a man is justified. That's what we mean by declared righteous. That's what, declared righteous is what we mean by justified. That a man is justified. He is declared legally righteous before God on the basis of faith and faith alone. Now at that time, the Roman Catholic Church taught that salvation was us cooperating with God and that we would be infused with the righteousness that we then had to maintain and we had to work out. And Rome taught that a man is justified by all of those works, that Christ was necessary but not sufficient to forgive somebody for their sins. The death of Christ was a necessary component but not a sufficient component. It wasn't all that was necessary. More had to be done. 
And so you could, you could spend your life working for salvation and never actually know if you would die a justified man or woman in the end. You would never know if you had done enough to merit that salvation. That was what the Roman church taught. And, and they had a, a, a system of indulgences where you were able, an indulgence was a papal piece of paper that basically remitted all of your sins. It was a, an official document granted by the Pope that would grant forgiveness for sins in exchange for the payment of money. Now, Pope Leo X was building St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and they needed a lot of money. And so the Pope came up with the idea of sending a man, a Dominican monk named Johann Tetzel, out through the countryside to sell papal indulgences, which was a piece of paper that you exchanged for money, you gave a donation for money, and you would receive complete forgiveness of sins if you donated it. That was what Tetzel taught. And he commissioned Tetzel to go through the countryside preaching and, and selling these indulgences, which raised a lot of money for the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Johann Tetzel was renowned for his unscrupulous methods. I would compare him to a, a slimy used car salesman, but that would be an unjustified slander against slimy used car salesmen everywhere. So I would never do that. He would pull on people's heartstrings. He would, he would get up and preach in front of cloud, crowds and he would say to them, even right now, while you stand there with money in your pocket, the mother who bore you, the father who sacrificed and raised you, is even now suffering in purgatory. And by a simple gift, you can alleviate his suffering and spring his soul from purgatory if you just get rid of the money that's in your hands even right now. And why would you not? Why would you not? Do you not love them enough to alleviate their suffering in purgatory by just giving a gift to the, to the church? And he would sell these indulgences and pull on people's heartstrings. And people, of course, would pay the money. And this would give them, they thought, a complete remission of their sins a complete forgiveness of the sins in exchange for money. Luther heard about that, and he was incensed. Just a couple of years prior to that, Luther had come to the conviction that a man is not saved by papal indulgences, by a declaration of the Pope, or by anything that he does, but by the grace of God through faith alone in Christ alone. He had come to that conviction. So Luther penned 95 statements that he wanted to debate and he posted those 95 statements to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And back then, it wasn't, a, it wasn't like vandalism or anything like that. In those days, that is what you did when you wanted to post something that you intended to debate. This was Luther's way of challenging his peers, the other students and the faculty at the monastery there, where he was working on his doctorate, to challenge them to a public debate. They didn't have a college football in those days, so they didn't entertain yourselves doing that. Instead, you hosted debates, which was the entertainment that took place in the college. And you would put people up and de debate these formal propositions. Well, Luther published, or wrote out 95 formal propositions and nailed them to the church in Wittenberg and was essentially saying, we're going to debate this. He did that on October 31st, 1517, the day before All Saints Day, when everybody would be coming into the church on the following day to celebrate the Mass on November 1st. So it was just a high traffic area, and that's what he was, that's what he was doing. Now those 95 theses all revolve around, well, not all of them, but for the most part, all of them, we can say, would revolve around the sale of indulgences. That was what Luther was challenging. He wasn't challenging the, he wasn't challenging the authority of the Pope. He wasn't challenging the authority of the church. He wasn't challenging a whole host of other Catholic doctrine. He was mostly challenging the sale and abuse of the sale of indulgences. Now, there are a number of things in the 95 Theses that you and I would agree with. Let me give you a couple of them. Theses 21 says this, quote, Thus, those indulgence preachers are in error who say that a man is absolved from every penalty 
and saved by papal indulgences. Close quote. That's what they were saying. You are absolved of all of your sin and saved by a declaration of the Pope because you purchased an indulgement and the money came to the church. That's what they were saying. Now, Johann Tetzel had a little catchphrase that he would use in, as he roamed around the countryside. And I've taught all of my children this. As the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. That was his little catchphrase. Well, listen to thesis number 27. They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. Can you hear Luther almost quoting verbatim Johann Tetzel's uh, statement? As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Luther said that's a human doctrine. It's not scriptural. Thesis 32. Those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. You hear that? Boom, I tell you, that was a hand grenade tossed in the middle of the crowd. Thesis 37. Any true Christian, whether living or dead, participates in all the blessings of Christ and the church and this is granted him by God, even without indulgence letters. That's orthodox, biblical Christian doctrine. In Luther's day, that was regarded by the church as heresy. That you could participate and enjoy all of the blessings secured for you in Christ without having a single indulgence letter from the Pope. Now, there are a number of the 95 theses that you and I would disagree with. In fact, there are a number of the 95 Theses that Luther, four years later, would disagree with. Because in those 95 Theses, remember, when he penned that, he was still an Augustinian monk living in the monastery. He had not, he had, not had this radical transformation of his theology by 1517. He had been saved and regenerated, born again for only a short period of time, a couple of years. But indulgence since he had come to a firm con and biblical conviction on that. But he did not question the authority of the Pope. He didn't question the authority of the church. He didn't question whether or not the Pope was uh, descended from Peter himself or was the vicar of Christ. He didn't question whether the Pope had authority to forgive certain sins. He didn't question the existence of purgatory itself. Luther had made statements in there where he assumed that many of those things were true. But within four short years after the Roman Catholic Church excommunicated him and called for his head, Martin Luther would be calling the, the Pope Antichrist within four years. And he would lead a full frontal assault on the abuses of the papacy and the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church within four years of 1517. All of that in 1521. At the heart of all of this, is this central issue, how is a man made right before God? Is it by papal indulgences? Is it by our works? Is it by the treasury of merit that the Pope draws out of and gives to us righteousness out of that? Or, as Protestants affirm, is a man made right before God, not because of what he has done, but because of what Christ has done for him? And that is secured for us, that is given to us on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The Roman Catholic Church would never disagree that Christ is necessary. They would never disagree that faith was necessary. They would never disagree that grace is necessary. What they disagreed with, that it was by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. It was that word alone that they could not tolerate. So at the heart of this issue is why, how is a man made right before God? And to see the importance of this issue, I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 1. Now, just about the time that you're thinking, I should be wrapping this up. We're finally getting to Galatians chapter 1. 
And you'll notice that there was no special music this morning, and there is no communion this morning. So by my reckoning, I still have a whole hour before you're really going to get mad. And by the way, the, the one thing that I need to, to point out before we get to Galatians chapter 1, that Reformation that Martin Luther started uh, instantly broke out all over Europe almost simultaneously, just like a spots of wildfires everywhere. William Tyndale led the Reformation efforts in England. John Calvin led it in Switzerland. John Knox led it in Scotland. God raised up at that time all of these great men. We, we don't worship Martin Luther. Luther believed a lot of things that today I wouldn't believe. They're not, non, they're not essential issues that we would disagree with. But there were things about Martin Luther that I would not affirm today. There are things about a lot of those men that we would not affirm today. And there are things about us that those men would think are, are horrible. And they wouldn't affirm. But they are great men whom God raised up at that period of time who worked tirelessly to keep the gospel the center of the life of the Christian and the church. Okay, Galatians chapter 1. And in order to set this up, I'm just going to be a little bit of a context here. Uh, normally, a passage like verses 6 to 9 that we're going to be looking at this morning would be the subject of three or four messages as we worked our way through here because it would certainly justify taking that much time to go through it. So what I'm going to give to you is really just kind of an overview of the issues that are here. And I want you to see the centrality of the gospel in Paul's thought and why it is important. So the church, the, the, the book of Galatians is not written to one individual church like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, or the book of Philippians. It was written to a group of churches that were in a region known as Galatia. Galatia was on the northern coast of the, the Mediterranean Sea. It was the region in which Paul went through on his very first missionary journey recorded in Acts 13 and 14. And when he landed on the shore of, of the Galatian region, which is today modern-day Turkey, the Apostle Paul landed and preached the gospel in four cities, Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And it was in one of those cities that he met who would, a man who would become his future traveling companion and protege, Timothy. That was on his first missionary journey. Paul went through, it was on that missionary journey that he was stoned in, I think it was Lystra or Iconium, one of those cities, Derbe, or Pisidian, Antioch. No, it was, it was one of those four cities where he was stoned and left for dead. And then he came back through and then went back to his home church at the end of Acts chapter 14, which was in a different city called Antioch, a different Antioch. All right, now, the book of Galatians, as soon as Paul got back to his home church, he got word that the Judaizers, which was a group of Jewish quote-unquote Christians, had come through the Galatian churches and begun, began to preach to those people who had believed Paul's message an entirely different message. Now, the Judaizers seemed to hound Paul's steps wherever he went. They were always right behind the Apostle Paul. And they preached the gospel, and they evangelized Gentiles, but their message was different. Paul came in and he preached a message that basically said, through Jesus Christ, you can be freed and delivered from all of the things that the law of Moses could not free you from. The law of Moses was inadequate to save you, to justify you, to make you righteous before God, or to sanctify you. But in Christ, you can have all of that by faith in Christ alone. That was Paul's message. And as soon as he left, the Judaizers would come in and say, you know, we agree with Paul. There's a lot of good stuff that that Paul says. Paul says that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's the Son of David, that He's the Messiah, that He died on the cross, that He rose again, that He ascended to the right hand of Father, and all of that was necessary for your salvation. We agree with Paul on all of that, but you must also be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. There was so much that they agreed with Paul on. This one little thing that they added to it. You must be circumcised and you must keep the law of Moses. Just, It was such a small alteration. You would think, really? Do we really need to divide over that? I mean, okay, they're, they're, they're just Jewish Christians. So they add circumcision. And, 
and ceremonial law keeping and, and Sabbath and, and what you eat and you can't eat and all the stuff about mixed fabrics and all the things that are sort of connected to that. Yeah, they add a bunch of that stuff, but they're, they are right on so much. Paul heard that the Judaizers had preached that gospel to the Galatians and that the Galatians had begun to believe that and they had begun to embrace this gospel of works righteousness. And Paul sat down to write the book of Galatians and it is a fiery epistle filled with arguments and strong language and fiery condemnations. And he gets right to the heart of the issue in chapter 1, verse 6, when he says to them, look at the text, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Paul was amazed. He was shocked. What shocked him? That false teachers teach false doctrine? Did that shock him? Did that shock anybody? You turn into TBN. Are you shocked at all that those, those clowns teach what they teach? That doesn't shock me at all. It angers me, but it doesn't surprise me. The reason I would watch TBN is to see those clowns teach false doctrine. It doesn't shock me at all. Paul was not shocked that the Judaizers had followed him and come in behind him. He knew that there were people from within the church who would rise up, draw away disciples after themselves, and pervert and distort the gospel. He knew that they would do that. He expected that they would do that. He knew that they would teach false doctrine. What shocked him? What shocked him is that the Galatian Christians who had embraced a message of grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, would so quickly abandon that for a different gospel. That's what shocked him. That the Galatians would put up with those false teachers. That they would give them a hearing. And then, amazingly enough, that they would embrace those doctrines. That's what shocked Paul. I am amazed that you have so quickly, verse 6, so quickly deserted him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. To leave the gospel that Paul had preached, a gospel of grace, and to add to that a message that includes human merit or a human work, even if it is something as as seemingly insignificant as just circumcision and a couple of ceremonies and keeping the Mosaic law, to add the one thing to the other was to Paul, it constituted a desertion of the gospel. And that's a military term that refers to somebody deserting a military unit. Such desertion deserved death in those days. That's the language that Paul used. You have abandoned your commander-in-chief. You have deserted the God who has called you by this grace. You have walked away now. Paul is not describing here a loss of their salvation. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying you are no longer in grace or that you have no, you're, you're no longer uh, are, are saved. He affirms throughout this epistle that these are genuine believers that he is talking about and talking to. But they had turned away from the God who saved them by grace and sanctifies them grace, and they had embraced a message of worth, uh, works. And so then they had therefore abandoned walking in the gospel of grace in order that they may walk in a gospel of works. This was an, abandon, an abandonment and a desertion of the gospel of grace. And they had done this for a different gospel. The word different, that is translated different there in verse 6, it's a word that means another of an entirely different kind. And to, to explain or to illustrate what Paul is talking about, look at the beginning of verse 7. He says that this gospel that they had believed, this different gospel, verse 7, is really not another. And the word another there is a different word, and it is a word that describes something that is another or different, but of the same kind. So follow what Paul's saying. You have embraced a gospel, a different gospel, which is another gospel of an entirely different kind. It is not a gospel of another kind. In other words, it doesn't have the same result. It doesn't do the same thing. It is in no way similar or the same as the gospel of grace. It is an entirely different message. The gospel of grace leads to salvation. It brings justification. A gospel of works brings damnation. Those are not the same gospel. 
I've mentioned this before. I'm just going to quickly tell this story. I was in a, a room with uh, 15 local pastors. who were talking about whether or not adding baptism to the gospel, the necessity of being baptized to the gospel, whether that was constituted a different gospel or not. And there were five of us that said that's a different gospel. That is a perversion of the gospel of grace. And at one point in that meeting, one of the local pastors who was still a pastor in this town, he stood up and he said, look, Jesus had to preach the gospel of the kingdom. James preached the gospel of works and Paul preached the gospel of grace and you could be saved by any one of those three gospels. What he was saying is there are all kinds of different roads, all kinds of different gospels that are really all the same thing. And I looked around at that group and I said, not audibly, but in my head, I don't belong here. Myself and these four other men, these are not our brothers. And not a single other evangelical, quote-unquote, Protestant pastor in that room even batted an eye at that assertion. To them, it was nothing, of course. It's just another gospel of the same kind. It's not. It's a different gospel, and it is not of the same kind of gospel as the one that Paul preached. So he says in verse 7, there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. See, adding one little thing, just circumcision, just add that. We agree on Paul on so much. We're just going to add, it's, it's great, the message that you've given. That's wonderful. Yeah, grace, Jesus is necessary. But see, the, the Galatians did not believe that Jesus was sufficient. They believed the death of Christ was necessary. They did not believe that the death of Christ was all that was necessary. See, that was a necessary component. But then we can add circumcision to it. And so what does Paul say about such a gospel that adds human merit, human works to the true gospel? He says in verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what you have preached to you, he is to be anathema, accursed, eternally damned. That's what happens. This, this, such a gospel is a damning gospel. And I say that with love. Such a gospel where you add works to grace is a gospel that damns. And those who teach it are set apart to be accursed. The word that Paul uses here means something that is devoted to destruction. And, and it doesn't matter who it is that says this. Listen, if I should say this to you, if another pastor should say this to you, if your uncle, your grandpa, your dad, anybody else should say it. doesn't matter the credentials. A teacher is to be judged based upon what he says, not upon who he is. It wouldn't even matter if an angel came out of heaven itself and preached this gospel. Paul is saying there is one gospel and it doesn't matter the credentials of the one who preaches to you another gospel. Doing so would bring, brings a curse. So he says in verse 9, as we've said before, referring to when he was there with them in person on the first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, I told you before when I was here, he knew men will come behind and they will preach a gospel contrary to what I preached. And so he warned them then when he was with them, if anybody preaches any other gospel than the one which we have preached, the one which you have received, the one that has saved you and justified you, if anybody preaches any other gospel than that, he is to be anathema, accursed. So verse 9, as we've said before, so now I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, he is to be accursed. The gospel of works says you believe Christ and do something for God so that you can be saved. A gospel of grace says you believe Christ because he has done everything for you and you are saved. See the difference? The gospel of works says belief plus brings the potential of salvation. If you do enough of the plus. And the gospel of grace says Christ has done everything for you. There is not only nothing more that you need to do, there is nothing more that you can do to save yourself. It is an entirely different message. 
And so damnation is the result for those who will teach and who will believe a gospel contrary to the gospel of grace. This is a gospel issue. What was the Reformation all about? What was it all about? It was all about the gospel. That's what it was all about. The gospel says that you and I are wretched sinners and that Jesus Christ stepped into this world and he lived a perfect life on my behalf. He died the death that I deserve on my behalf. He satisfied the wrath of the Father by taking and bearing all of my sin on himself on the cross. And then he rose again on my behalf and that his work has secured forever, infallibly, and everlastingly my salvation, my sanctification, and my security, and that He will gather in all of His sheep. He will lose not one of them, turn not one of them away, and gather all of His bride, His church, those for whom He gave His life. He will gather all of them in to His eternal kingdom. And that Christ has done all of that on behalf of all who will trust in Him. That is the biblical gospel. And that a man, by believing that and trusting in Christ, is declared righteous in the court of God, and all of the good deeds which Christ has done are credited to my account. And all of the sin that I have committed is credited to His account. It is this great exchange that has taken place. My sin for His righteousness, His righteousness for my sin. That's the exchange that is taking place. And I am made a beneficiary of all of that at the moment that I repent of my sin and believe upon Jesus Christ and trust Him because He has done everything. It is no work of mine at all from start to finish. It is, I do not cooperate with God in this process. It is all His work. That's the biblical gospel. Now, Rome says, God infuses you with a little dose of righteousness. And you have to maintain that, and you've got to really work that out. And you do this, you maintain that grace of justification by working out that salvation and doing good works and doing penance, and, uh, and, and salvation is, is then communicated to you through the church and through the means of grace that come through the Catholic Church, and that you work all of that out yourself. Now, you might at some point commit a mortal sin. And a mortal sin would take that, that grace of justification and it would erase it so that you're no longer justified. And if you wanted to get re-justified, then you've got to do penance, you've got to do confession, you've got to do some things to submit yourself to the grace. You might eventually get a little bit more grace again so that you might gain that justification again. And having achieved that justification again, you might commit another mortal sin, in which case you would lose that justification. You've got to go through all that process. You're never going to know at any point in time whether you are going to die a justified individual or if you're going to die in your sins in an unjustified state and go to hell. But if you die in a justified state, then you might actually commit a venial sin. Now, a venial sin is not a mortal sin, because a venial sin doesn't take away the grace of justification. See, a venial sin just makes you dirty and guilty, which sin then has to be purged off of you and burned off of you in purgatory if you die, having not done enough penance or received enough merit or forgiveness from the Pope in order to pay off the venial sins. And so then you're going to go to purgatory for a hundred years, maybe a thousand years, some of you 10,000 years, until you have paid off all of the guilt and stain of all of the venial sins, not the mortal sins, that you have committed. Now, you can take time off of your stay in purgatory by buying an indulgence, by doing penance, by uh, seeing a relic or visiting a holy site or praying to Mary or to the saints. And I'll ask you this question. Does that sound anything like the biblical gospel? Even close? It's not even close. This is what Luther and the Reformers were reacting against. They said, this is, this is not what Scripture says. 
We read through Ephesians chapter 1. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He has predestined us to adoption. He has predestined us to the forgiveness of sins. We have this in Christ. We have all of the riches and the treasures of heaven, all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. It is by grace we have been saved through faith, and that is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. Essentially, it is all of Christ and none of us. That is the biblical gospel. Rome said, yeah, it's a combination. And you might at some point die in an unjustified state. That is not the biblical gospel, and that is what the Reformation was all about. Now, if you think that I'm being too harsh on Roman Catholics, I want you to understand that the Roman Catholic Church has officially anathematized every individual in here who believes the biblical gospel. It is the official position of the Roman Catholic Church that if you believe that you are justified by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, if you believe that, you stand accursed under the judgment of God. That is the official position of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, in 1544, just about 30 years after the start of the Protestant Reformation, Rome had a council. It was the Council of Trent. And that went on for almost 20 years, from 1544 to 1563. You think our church meetings go on a long time. Theirs went on 20 years. And uh, during that period of time, they had a number of different meetings of church bishops and, and the Pope, and they had different statements on different doctrines. They were responding to uh, what the Reformers were teaching and preaching and writing about. And they have, you can see this yourself online, that's the Canons of Justification. I'm going to read to you Canon 9. Now listen to this. Here's what Rome says about you. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. Basically what they're saying is if you believe that you are declared righteous at the moment of your faith alone, and that nothing else is necessary for you to do to cooperate with that, that you are completely righteous, even if you do nothing else, and if you believe that grace is not necessary or, or that this justification does not come through a movement or activity of your own will, if you believe that, you are anathema. I affirm every last syllable of what they said is a cursed and, and heretical doctrine. Rome anathematizes the biblical gospel. I'll give you another canon from Trent. Number 30. If anyone saith that after the grace of justification has been received... To every penitent sinner, the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such wise that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or the next in purgatory before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him. Let him be anathema. Basically what, what Rome was saying is if you believe that justification means that all of your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, every sin is committed and you are declared fully righteous in the sight of God. If that is what you believe, you are cursed. Friends, that is what the Bible teaches. We are justified on the basis of faith and faith alone, by grace and grace alone. And that this justification comes to us in Christ and Christ alone. Rome anathematizes the biblical gospel and as far as we know, the Judaizers of Paul's day never went that far. They never went that far. If Paul said that the gospel that adds circumcision to the true gospel is anathema, accursed, what would Paul say about a system that adds baptism and the mass 
and indulgences and purgatory and venial sins and mortal sins and papal indulgences and papal bulls and papal authority and the church and all the other sacraments and marriage and all of that to the gospel. What would Paul say about that? Paul went off the handle on a group of people that just added circumcision to the gospel. And, and, And now we are talking about a false church that adds all of that other stuff to the gospel. Rome, Roman Catholics and Protestants, we agree on a lot of different things. Uh, there's a lot that we agree with. We, Roman Catholics would say that they believe in the Trinity, and they do. And, and broadly speaking, and broadly defined, they would, they would agree that the Scripture is inspired. They believe in bodily resurrection, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the virgin birth. They would, they would say that they agree with the authority of Scripture, though it's not authority of Scripture alone. Uh, so there's a lot of things that Roman Catholics and Protestants would agree on. Uh, they agree with us on a lot of moral issues. They oppose homosexual marriage, same-sex marriage. They oppose uh, the whole idea of multiple genders, and they oppose homosexuality, a lot of social ills, and abortion. And we agree on a lot of those things. And there might come a time someday when I share a jail cell with a Roman Catholic priest, because neither of us will recognize more than two genders. Neither of us will recognize a same-sex wedding ceremony. Neither of us will perform a same-sex wedding ceremony. So there may come a time when I'm sitting in a jail cell next to a Roman Catholic priest because I will not bow the knee to the progressive bail of our age. That time may come. I may share a jail cell with them, but I will never share heaven with them. Because the Roman Catholic church, priest and I would both agree to this as well, that one of us is damned. They would say that the gospel that I preach is a heretical, damnable heresy. And I would say that the gospel that the Roman Catholic Church preaches is a damnable heresy. We agree that one of us preaches the right gospel and the other preaches a counterfeit. So we're not going to share heaven together. That can't happen. Because what divides us then divides us still. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, there was a movement. I forget if it was the 80s or the 90s. But it was called the ECT Accords, the Evangelicals and Catholics Together. It was one of these ecumenical fests where people on one side of an issue who really don't believe anything in particular get together with people on the other side of the issue who really don't believe anything in particular. And they come together and they discuss what it is that they really don't believe in particular. And then they issue a statement talking about how they all believe the same thing. That's basically what this was about. And on the evangelical Protestant side was J.I. Packer, Jim Packer, and Chuck Colson. And they were promoting the idea that really we are just, as Protestants, estranged brethren from Rome. That there's really, the difference between Roman Catholics and Protestants is just maybe the way we define some of the terms. And if we could just get over some of the definitions, we could really all get together and all be one happy church again. It was an attempt to reverse the Reformation. There is even today, 500 years after the Protestant Reformation, many multiple movements afoot among mainline and liberal evangelical churches to efforts to reverse the Reformation and to say it was all much ado about nothing. No, it was much ado about the gospel. It was then and it still is today. Rome has never reversed itself on the, on the canons of, of Trent, on the Council of Trent and those statements that anathematizes you and I. They have never reversed that. They st- that is official Catholic dogma and practice today. They believe you're damned if you believe this. And they want to welcome you back as a strange brethren. But of course what they mean by that is you're going to have to abandon your belief in justification by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. We are separated. And the divide is as deep today as it has ever been. And all of the efforts to reverse the Reformation or to ignore its significance are nothing more than recognitions that they do not understand what the central theological issues of the Reformation are. The answer to this question 
How is a man made right before God? That's the issue. How is a man made right before God? I'm sitting in a jail cell with a Catholic priest, and the jailer walks in and says to us, how is a man made right before God? We, though we may agree on a hundred cultural issues and a dozen other doctrines, we will disagree on the answer to that question. How is a man made just before God? And so that separates us. That divides us. Now, in the weeks ahead, and I want to give you some preview as to what's coming up. In the weeks ahead, we're going to be doing a series of messages, not five messages on the five solas of the Reformation, but we're doing a series of messages that all kind of go around what are called the five solas of the Reformation. And we're tackling the same issue from a number of different perspectives. So here are the five solas of the, of the Reformation. These are five Latin phrases that came out of the Reformation which kind of crystallize what it is that separates Protestants and Catholics. Sola Scriptura, which is, means Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, which means grace alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone, and soli Deo Gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. Scripture alone is, uh, I'm going to be preaching on that next, uh, next Sunday. The Reformation and Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, scripture alone is the foundation of the church. The week after that, on October 8th, Dave Rich is going to preach a message, the Reformation and the human will, or the will of man, dealing with the issue of who is it that saves and how are we saved and what do we contribute to it. And that's going to be from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. After that, Cornell is going to preach, uh, sorry, Jess is going to preach uh, the Reformation and Justification by Faith from Romans chapter 4 and 5. The week after that, on October 22nd, Cornell is going to preach the Reformation and the Sacraments or the Ordinances, dealing with the issue of baptism and the Lord's Supper and what those are and the significance of them, what they symbolize. And then at the end of all of that, Justin is going to bring us full circle with the Reformation and False Doctrine on October 29th from the book of Jude, verse 3, and he's going to bring us back to where we have started today to show us what the effects of false doctrine are. So we'll be coming right back to this central issue. It is about the gospel. So that's where we're going in the weeks ahead. Now, I want you, here's a few housekeeping issues as we wrap this up in conclusion. I want you to understand that all of us elders know that we are not going to be able to be comprehensive in this series that we are covering. This can't be comprehensive. Every single one of these messages could have been a whole series in themselves. The amount of stuff, material, that had to hit the editing room floor in this all too brief, though almost an hour long, introduction to the subject of the Reformation breaks my heart. And I had to leave a whole bunch of stuff out that I wanted to include. And as we've been working on this for a year, when we get together, we, 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 have, to, we have to tell each other, this is a laser beam. There are all these things that we are not going to be able to deal with. We can't deal with whether Peter was the first pope or whether there is an unbroken succession between Peter and the Pope today. We can't deal with papal indulgences. We can't deal with papal authority, the immaculate conception of Mary, uh, what their view of the virgin birth is, uh, penance, the treasury of merit, venal sins, mortal sins. There are a, a, a hundreds of issues that are connected to the Reformation that we cannot deal with simply because we don't have time. There are, are so many things. We're not ignorant of them. We just can't address them. So we know this is not going to be comprehensive. Each one of these is going to be a bird's eye view of, of the issues and all centered, focused like a laser beam around this. How is a man made right before God? That's really the question at the heart of the Reformation. So that is what we're going to be zeroing in on. Now, there are going to be some recommended resources in your bulletin. You will see that if you want to read further or listen further. Every one of us is going to come up with a list of recommended resources that you can buy uh, that we would recommend if you want further information on any of these subjects. And also, each one of the messages that is preached in this series will have a written companion that will be published in the newsletter over the course of the next several months. So next week, when the newsletter comes out, it will be kind of a written summary of everything that you've heard 
heard today so that you have a collection of those things over the course of the next uh, several months as they're released. In adult Sunday school class, if you want more information on the subject of the Reformation or Martin Luther, his life and times, his theology, and all the stuff that I couldn't go into today, I would recommend that you attend the adult Sunday school class in this same location starting at 9.30 on Sunday mornings. We're going through a 10-part video series by R.C. Sproul called Luther and the Reformation. It's 10 20-minute lectures on Luther, his history, his life, his times, his theology, and what precipitated the Reformation, what came after the Reformation. It will be all of the historical stuff that I haven't been able to go into here. So we're going to be watching two of those a week for the next five weeks. And then on November 5th, on November 5th, we're going to have a Q&A in adult Sunday school class. And the teens will be in here with the adults, by the way, all the way through November 5th. A Q&A, so if you have any questions that come up during this series, theological questions, philosophical, historical, whatever it is, write, text, email, send, give the question to one of the elders in the course of the next several weeks. It would, it, you'll have an opportunity to ask them on the spur of the moment until Sunday school class, but if we had a chance to kind of read over them, think them over and research them if we need to, that would be more beneficial. So get us those questions, and we will answer those during the Q&A on November 5th, maybe November 12th as well, depending on how well it goes. Now, like Colombo, I have just one more thing. <clears throat> this will go quick. And I know I don't need to say this for most of the people that are sitting in this room, but I want to say it and I want to make it very clear. This series, my message, my feeling, is not motivated by animus or hatred toward Roman Catholics at all. Not at all. I was baptized as a baby in the Roman Catholic Church. I had grandparents that were Roman Catholics. I have relatives today that are still Roman Catholics in the Roman Catholic Church. Many of you have come out of the Roman Catholic Church. Many of you, probably everybody in here knows somebody, works with somebody, or is close with somebody who is a practicing Roman Catholic. It's not motivated by by hatred toward, I got no axe to grind. So if you're a post, you know, an ex-Roman Catholic and you're sitting here thinking to yourself, man, I can't wait for Jim and the elders just unload on those Catholics over the neck because they hurt me and they harm me and I'm bitter. You're going to be sorely disappointed because that's not our goal and that's not what we're doing. We're, this, this, these are theological issues that we are addressing. These are real differences and distinctions and it is motivated out of love. The same love that caused Paul to say to the Galatians, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. That was motivated by love. It's the same love that motivates us that says we desire Roman Catholics to come to know and embrace the true gospel, the only gospel that can save and justify and sanctify and secure the sheep of Christ everlastingly. We want Roman Catholics to embrace that. It's out of love that we say these things. It does, brings, brings me no joy, none whatsoever, to affirm that Roman Catholics, if they believe Roman Catholic doctrine, will spend eternity in hell. That does not bring me any joy. None. It saddens me. It grieves me. I want them to embrace the true and real gospel. I can say with Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a clean conscience. That's the goal of our instruction. Let us bow. Our Father, we delight in the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have saved a people for yourself, that you have done so infallibly and fully, based upon nothing that we have done or what we can contribute to our salvation, but only because of what Christ has done. We thank you that his righteousness avails for all who will trust in him. And we pray that this series of messages that we are going to be listening to and thinking along, that they would serve to equip us to reach out to Roman Catholics in love and grace, that they would encourage our hearts in the truth, that they would make the differences and distinctives clear, and that you would give us grace to, to be obedient to the things that we read in Scripture. May you be glorified through our time and our study here. It is motivated by love, and we pray that we would delight in these things and delight in the gospel itself. Remind us again how precious that is, and we pray that you would use this series to draw your people to yourself, to equip them and to edify them. And if there are any who do not know and have not embraced the saving gospel 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would draw them to yourself even now that they may embrace that gospel and be saved everlastingly. Make us to abandon all of our hopes in our own righteousness and trust in Christ and Christ alone, we pray. In his name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.